All right, I'm going to go ahead and get started because we actually have quite a bit to get through today. Um, uh, last week, the recording didn't come out well, so I, I gotta, I'm going to do a little bit of review at first, and then we'll progress through um, what God says to the woman, what God says to the man, and then we'll, Lord willing, before the end of the class, we'll get into uh, the, the beginning of the Noahic Covenant, which is where I want to go and start talking about all the fun stuff with that. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your your loving kindness and your grace and your mercy in our lives, your steadfastness and faithfulness towards us, Lord, when we are so often un, unfaithful towards you. We thank you for the abundance of grace and mercy that you've shed upon us uh, in Christ by your Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us and uh, give us wisdom and attentive hearts that we may look to you and to the things of your kingdom and that we would uh, be built up in our faith uh, by those things, Lord, and that your name would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so as we've seen the last couple of weeks, uh, in the, even in the midst of judgment, God immediately uh, inaugurates the covenant of grace and his initiation of warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this warfare, as Scripture tells us, will ultimately uh, uh, culminate in the eventual defeat and destruction of Satan and his followers by Christ. Uh, this defeat has already been uh, I guess, uh, inaugurated at the cross, uh, where the, the devil and his angels and the forces of wickedness have been defeated. Uh, but the consummation of that defeat has not yet been brought about, and it will be at Christ's final return in judgment. Um, to summarize uh, the curse of the serpent, we looked at the following. We saw that God is the one who, who brings forth this enmity. And this is an enmity that is still with us today and has been with us throughout uh, human history. Um, and we see that the woman is mentioned first because she was the first to be seduced by the serpent. And we see that Adam had immediately blamed his wife for his fall, but God sovereignly establishes the woman, that the woman shall play an integral part in the plan of redemption. That though she was the, the first to be seduced by Satan, God reverses that immediately and, and, and makes sure that she's going to play an integral part in redemption. And God establishes not only enmity between the serpent and the woman, but between her seed and the serpents. And that, you know, as we just mentioned, this enmity is seen throughout the rest of Scripture, and, and it's spiritual in nature. The enmity is not a matter of physical descent, um, but is, is, again, spiritual in nature. Uh, from Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Covenant, he writes, The woman's seed could be identified with the totality of humanity. However, the immediately succeeding section in Genesis narrates Cain's murder of his brother Abel, and the New Testament explicitly determines the significance of these two persons in the cosmic struggle between God and Satan. Cain originates from the evil one, 1 John 3.2. Though descended from Eve, just as his brother, he cannot be regarded as belonging to the seed of the woman described in Genesis 3.15. Instead of being opposed to Satan, he is the seed of Satan. The seed of the woman cannot be identified simply with all physical descendants of womankind. Now the key to identifying the seed of the woman in this conflict resides in the God-originating character of the enmity described. God himself sovereignly sets enmity within the heart of the natural descendants of the woman. By the process of natural birth, the fallen woman brings forth a depraved seed. But by grace, God establishes enmity within the heart of particular descendants of the woman. These individuals may be designated as the woman's seed. 
Now the other side of the conflict between the seeds must be considered. The seed of the serpent cannot be identified rather naively with snakes. The conflict and vision describes something more crucial. Satan also has his associates, his angels. Although materially not descended from the devil, they may be regarded figuratively as his seed. At the same time, Scripture indicates that within humanity itself is a seed of Satan set against God and his purposes. Cain was of the evil one. John the Baptist described his hypocritical contemporaries as a generation of vipers, Luke 3, 7. The Lord himself explicitly indicated that his opponents were of their father, the devil, and would join him in his murderous works, John 8, 44. So among humanity, the physical descendants of the woman exists a seed of Satan. This seed stands in opposition to God and his purposes, which I don't think is a very controversial point. We see people openly just radically opposed uh, to God and to his people. Yet a third level of enmity manifests itself in these verses. Womankind struggles with Satan. Woman's seed struggles with Satan's seed, and he struggles with Satan. The identification of the person designated by the pronoun he raises several difficult problems. The Hebrew pronoun in this case is masculine in gender, singular in number. The most natural grammatical construction would refer the term to the seed of the woman, which also is masculine in gender and singular in number. The he who is destined to bruise Satan's head would refer to the seed of the woman mentioned in the immediately preceding phrase. Although singular in number, this he could refer to to a multiple of persons just as the singular seed. And this is precisely the interpretation found in Romans 16.20. The God of all peace shall bruise Satan under your plural feet shortly. Paul sees the ultimate realization of this earliest word of prophecy and the destruction of Satan under the feet of believers at the end of the age. However, the pronoun he deserves further consideration. Some differentiation must be made to distinguish between the contact of seed with seed and the conflict of he with Satan himself. The struggle in this last instance is not between seed and seed, as in the previous phrase. Satan himself as an individual has been reintroduced into the conflict. As the prince of his people, he stands as representative of their cause. To correspond to the narrowing from seed to Satan, on one side of the enmity, it would appear quite appropriate to expect a similar narrowing from a a multiple seed of, of woman to a singular he who would champion the cause of God's enmity against Satan. A single representative hero shall descend from the woman to join the conflict. The pronoun he may involve the whole woman's seed, but involvement shall be by the representative principle. This individual hero interpretation finds ancient support by those who are responsible for translating the Old Testament into Greek almost 200 years before Christ was born. Since the Greek word for seed is neuter, it would have been quite appropriate that it be followed by the neuter pronoun it. It, the seed of the woman, would bruise the head of the serpent. But instead of the neuter seed with the neuter it, the Septuagint translators chose a distinctively masculine he. He, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. Now basically what Robertson's talking about in somewhat technical language is, is how, how do we understand that there's a, a broadening conflict between the seed of the woman and that at the end of the prophecy in Genesis 15 there's a narrowing uh, specifically relating to, to Satan and what's going to happen to Satan. Now that narrowing also corresponds to the narrowing of the seed. So not only is there uh, a multi- um, multiplicity of seeds of the woman, 
there's also a particular one who it refers to. There's ultimately a, a single one who it refers to who's, not, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Is everybody tracking with me there? I think we talked about last week that there's a, there's a chiasm here. There's, a, there's an arrangement of, of language where there's corresponding uh, aspects of, the, of, of Genesis 3.15 where it starts in a broad aspect and it narrows to a, a, a particular instance of a singular seed of, of the woman, which we know to be Christ. All right, so this enmity between the seed of the woman, and this is, uh, that was the end of the quote from, from Robertson's. So the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is continuous throughout Scripture. And we think we see this. It's one of these things that we see throughout Scripture that we may not even, we, we just kind of take for granted. We see continually, God delivers his people how? Think, let's look at, uh, let's look at, um, let's look at uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. How does he deliver his people? Through the destruction of their enemies. How does he deliver Abram? Through the destruction of his enemies. How does he deliver David and Israel? Through the destruction of his enemies. How in the book of Judges does God deliver his, his people? Through the destruction of their enemies. So we see this enmity played throughout Scripture again and again and again and again. We think of the time of, of the, the monarchy. How does God deliver his people? There's, there's literal enemies at the gate. He delivers his people through the destruction of their enemies. And in the New Testament, it's no different. All of these things, are, they're, they're typological and they, they foreshadow the ultimate battle, the ultimate showdown between uh, Christ and Satan. How does he deliver us? How does the New Testament teach us that God delivers us? Through the destruction of our enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. What does Christ say to his, his, uh, his disciples on the, the night in which he was betrayed? Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He tells us to take heart. He tells us to have courage because of a victory that he's had over our enemies. As well as the destruction, it's the protection of his own people always. Yep. Like the end of Sodom and it takes them away, protects them, mm-hmm. but then there's judgment yep. on the ungodly. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> consider also the temptation of Christ. This is an interesting uh, thing to consider. The devil quotes a passage of scripture and ironically twists it. From Matthew 4, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike a stone. Do any of you uh, put you on the spot? Do you know what passage of scripture the devil's quoting? He is quoting scripture. Very good. Give that lady a cheroot. <laughs> Do you know which one? All right. Psalm 91, 11 through 13 says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here's the part that the devil conveniently leaves out. Verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder, and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. There is a direct reference to Genesis 3.15 in that passage that the devil comes against Christ with in a temptation to try and get Christ to, to bow down to him. He leaves that part out. 
<laughs> but it, it tells us something about the cunningness of, of, of the devil and the cunningness of false teachers. Just a tiny bit of information that's left out, and it's twisted and manipulated to try and bring about um, uh, the, the fall of Christ, if such could happen. Yeah. He's an angel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point actually. Like he he's he's literally he's actually he's actually going against what his entire purpose is, which is his huge problem. He's he's the about he's the rebel. He doesn't stay in his his appointed domain. And he's bringing this verse and using it to try and manipulate Christ into following him. And the next verse talks about him being defeated by the one that he's trying to tempt. Just uh, crazy. All right, so moving on uh, to the woman. In Genesis 3, uh, God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Notice in this passage also that there is, there's, a, there's both blessing and cursing. We, we think of the, the, the main blessing of this passage coming in Genesis 3.15 and, and the first, excuse me, mention of the gospel. But there's blessing in this passage as well, which again drives us home, drives us back to the gracious character and the long-suffering nature of God. That he, he, he's, he's got all the cards, so to speak, to put in, in, in you know, plain terms. He's got every right to execute as severe a judgment as, as he would like. But yet, even in the midst of his doing this, there's still blessing. Because it says that God will ensure that humanity will continue to be fruitful and multiply as per the original created order. He's telling her, you're still going to have children. You're still going to be fruitful. You're still going to multiply. But it will be through pain that children are brought forth into the world. And this involves not only the pain of labor, but the, the attendant sorrows of, of being a mother and of being a parent, and of raising children. But in this, God is also promising again that, that there will be one who will come from you. He's reiterating, he's telling her, not, there's going to be a seed. I'm going to make sure that there's going to be a seed. He's telling her that. There will be one who comes from you who provides victory for you. There will be one who ultimately will crush the serpent. And we also see that the marriage relationship is greatly affected. Uh, the created order is disrupted by the presence of sin in the marriage relationship. A woman's desire will be to rule over her husband because the woman's sin was brought, was brought about by a usurpation of her husband's place. She will have a desire for that, but it will be not granted to her. And we see a parallel passage uh, just shortly after this when, in the passage of, of, of Cain and Abel um, where, where God says to Cain, Sin's desire is for you, but you should rule over it. This, thematically, there's, a, there's, a, there's similar language going on there. So we kind of see what God's saying to Eve. Like, you are going to have a desire against that's contrary to your husband, but it's not going to be granted to you. It's going to be, you're, there's going to be a frustration there. And then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. As with Eve, there's blessings contained in God's words of judgment upon Adam. God promises Adam that he will have food to sustain his life. I'm going to make sure that you continue to live. Again, this points to the fact that God is going to eventually fulfill his promise to destroy the serpent through a deliverer. I'm going to make sure that the, that the promise that I've given to you is going to be carried out. Adam will have bread to eat, but it, it will be through great toil and frustration and pain. It is not that Adam would now have to work, and this is an important thing for us to consider. There was work prior to the fall. We are created for work. Um, we're... rip that thing out of the wall Um, so work is is not the curse but it's that our work and that our efforts are going to be frustrated Um, that was again work is a part of of and labor is a part of the the original created order but again it's that labor will be wearisome and painful in order for him to produce the food that he needs and adam is also specifically cursed because he chose to listen to his wife rather than to god the earth is also placed under a curse which speaks to the global sphere in which Adam was placed and given dominion. So Adam's sin not only affected humanity, but it, 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 all the blessings slash commands that God had given to Adam in the garden were affected by Adam's failure to keep the covenant of works. So we see that the earth is now subjected to decay. And we see that it groans until the new creation is brought forth. So we see that this really speaks of the totality of God's plan to redeem and restore all that was lost through the fall of Adam. And this is exactly, and we'll see this further, particularly as we go on into the, the covenant with Noah, because we see that there's a universal aspect to the covenant of Noah, that, that in the Noahic covenant, there, there really is a, a, a it's, it's, it is an administration of a covenant of grace, which we'll dig into further, but it it is also it creates the sphere in which the covenant of grace can 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 be brought about and be fulfilled it is, and it's a common grace covenant it has to do with the entirety of the world um, <clears throat> and adam you know as we all know is also cursed to eventually die he will return to the ground which was he was to have dominion over so there's the the sad tragic irony of this passage that Adam is given dominion over the earth and God's sending him back to it. And now through pain, he'll work the ground. Uh, any comments or questions? Sorry to, to, to rush through that stuff, but we needed to, to kind of cover what we, what we lost from last week and then uh, kind of bring us back into the, into the, to the Noahic covenant. No? Okay. No, it's it's it. What I'm no, I'm what I'm saying is that there's there's a broad when we when we look at the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and then he will bruise your your head, or you will uh, bruise his heel, and he will crush your head. There's a broad aspect to that passage, which we see, you know, just reading scripture, interpreting it from 
reading back into that passage, and then there's a narrowing focus of that passage where there's a broad seed of the woman and there's a broad seed of, of the serpent in that in humanity, um, there's, there's both. There's, there's, we see the seed of, of the woman in Abel, and we see the seed of the serpent in Cain. We see the seed of the, of the woman in David, and we see the seed of the serpent in Saul. So we see like throughout humanity, there's a warfare going on between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between God's people and God's enemies. But at the, at, at the, the close of that passage, there's a narrowing of focus between, and particularly in the, regards to the pronoun he, because the he refers back to the seed of the woman in one sense, but not in, and not in that broad sense, because there's a corresponding pronoun to Satan. So that at a broad aspect and then a, a narrowing of that aspect. All right, speaking to the fact that ultimately, though there is this broad aspect of the warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in all of humanity, ultimately it's going to come down to a showdown between one seed of the woman and the devil, and that, that being Christ. That is so clarifies that it's, it's a spiritual seed because if it, if it was just physical, yeah. then yeah. it, it wouldn't. It, it would just be physical playing out in humanity. Yeah, it is. It is not. A, it is not a matter of of, of physical dis- descent, which we clearly see from the following passage. When we look at, at Cain and Abel, they both came from Adam and Eve, uh, but one of them was uh, you know, of faith, and one of them clearly wasn't. Um, one of them's used as an example of faith, and one of them's used as an example of of evil and murderous intent and likening. You know which. Again, in regards to the spiritual nature of it, when we look at the New Testament, when it talks about the false prophets in Jude and in Second Peter, and likens them in, in, in some way to Cain, uh, it's talking about really the spiritual aspect of of a Christian life and in the church, and then of the importance of sound teaching and sound doctrine, because the. The, the false teachers, what do they do? They teach falsely. They twist scripture. They bring about destruction. But it's a spiritual. It's spiritual in nature. They do, it's, not, it's not necessarily a matter of physical warfare. Their teaching may bring about physical sin, and it speaks about sexual morality in particular. But it's a, it's a, there is a, a definite spiritual aspect to it. Or again, always referencing Ephesians chapter 2, and it says, you were of, by nature, and speaking of, of what we are on the inside, children of wrath, and we follow the prince of the power of the air. It, it, it refers to the spiritual impulses of the fall, of fallen humanity apart from the grace of God to be at enmity with God, to move away from God, to follow in our own way, to be as God in our own, in our own lives. Does that answer your question? <clears throat> All right. All right, cool. We are going to get to the covenant of Noah. All right, so the covenant of Noah, and we'll like with the with this first part with the covenant of works and of the fall, we'll we will likely spend a a, a few weeks in this because it's important, you know, especially just wading through all the the issues when we get to the beginning of Genesis chapter six and who are the sons of God, who are the daughters of men, what are the Nephilim, what and who are the Nephilim, and and what does this have to do with the with the coming of the flood? Um, it's a it's an interesting passage, and it's one you know I've spent quite a bit of time in this past week, 
there's been a tremendous amount of, of ink spilt over the, the proper interpretation of it. Um, and I'll go over the, the various main interpretations of the passage, and, I, and I'll tell you what I think is, is the, the correct and, and the true one, and I'll tell you why. I'll give you the strengths and weaknesses for both, but uh, I think it's important for us to, to, to realize that. Because I, I would imagine most, if not all of us, were, were raised in churches that, that, um, that held to you know, the sons of God are, are angels who's, who cohabitated with women, and that there was some offspring uh, that came from that that union, and those were the giants and the Nephilim and all that kind of stuff. I would, that's probably the majority view in the church, and it's an old view. It's it's not without its merits, but I don't think it's the correct view. <clears throat> I think sometimes people tend to be a little dismissive of it as you know science fiction, but I, you know, given its historical pedigree, I think it's better just to argue against it. Okay, so approaching, in approaching the covenant with Noah, it's important to view the context which leads up to it. Um, and this is Genesis 5 uh, through Genesis 6, 8. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage because this context is extremely important. We tend to look at passages like this and gloss over them because who in the world wants to read a genealogy? And so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so. But I tell you what, those genealogies are there for a reason. And particularly when it comes about, when it comes to the flood and the judgment and the, and the covenant with Noah, what we're reading in this passage tells us a great deal. And particularly with what we just talked about regarding the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, that there's this warfare that's going on. Because we read about both those seeds here. All right, Genesis 5. <clears throat> this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Just a, a, as an aside, um, this, is a, a, it, this is a common way in which Moses tells us, hey, I'm changing the subject here. I'm changing the theme. And when, it, when he talks about this is the generations of. Um, this is one of the ways in which we can see how, how Moses, in the structure of the book of Genesis, begins a narrowing, narrowing of focus from broader... Because uh, it's, it's really ultimately about four men. It's about Adam, it's about Noah, and it's about Abraham, and it's about Jacob. That's primarily what it's about. We see this big, big, broad thing with the, with the uh, creation of the universe, focusing on Adam, and then we're, now we're focusing further down uh, con- subsequently to Adam's history to, to Noah and what has gone on since that time. And also, you know, for what it's worth, you know, God is, uh, Moses is obviously, when we think about, when we think about this and we think about it being read throughout the, the, the millennia to the people of God, he's, he's very, very smartly, you know, obviously under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He's reminding people of the big themes. If you were listening to this being read to you, you'd be able to follow what's going on in the way that this was written. He says, he calls them back to what's just come before. This is only Genesis 5. He's calling them back to the beginning. He's calling them back to the original creation. He's calling them back to mankind being created in the image of God, both male and female. And he says they name them man. So today when when people who are uh, so sensitive about pronouns and 
and gender and, and whatnot, you know, when they hear words human or mankind, you can politely remind them that, it, it, you know, the word man does not necessarily refer to maleness or to the masculine. It refers to the fact that we are human beings created in the image of God. Uh, Dana, you are man. You are mankind. Kirkland, you are mankind. Um, it, it doesn't mean that you're, you're males. Because God created man, male and female. That's just a bugaboo that I just want <laughs> to put my finger on. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, when Adam had lived 130 years... No, I'm not. I'm not at all saying that you can, you know, if. Not saying that the distinction isn't important and not just saying that the distinction isn't there, but the distinction does fall and that like, mankind is both male and female. We are the same thing. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan, 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now you see that passage points out a very distinct difference in the narrative. That Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now how does that contrast with everybody else that we've been reading about? What does it say about everybody else? And he died, and he died, and he died. So in this narrative, we see the theme being brought out of the spread of death and sin throughout the world repeatedly. Moses is making a point, and he died, and he died, and he died. And, and they had sons and daughters, and we can, we can uh, infer from the passage, they died too. But here's something different. Here's, here's a man who walked with God and was preserved from death which tells us ultimately of, of what awaits uh, God's people, that death will be brought to, uh, to an end. Verse 25, When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now we'll come back to this passage, because uh, we only have a few more moments left. We'll come back to this passage again over the next, uh, probably next week, and we'll also look at uh, a bit of chapter 4 as, by way of, of contrasting, trying to figure out who are the sons of God, because when we look at the the, the narrative around uh, Cain and Abel and the, the, the enmity that exists there. And, and we see also, prior to this, talking about the descendants of Adam through Seth, prior to that in chapter 4, we see the descendants of Cain and what happens. So we, see, we can see that contrast further uh, regarding the, the two seeds. And again, we'll, we'll, um, we'll look at that more in depth as, as we go on. Um, but again, uh, following Robertson's Christ of the Covenants, um, and we, this is what we're going to be looking at uh, next week, starting off next week. Uh, there's, there's, there are important themes for us to consider in this passage. Um, <clears throat> and also, uh, before I read it, when I talked about, and these are the generations of Adam, this is, this is Moses' way of telling us that a new section is, is being introduced, and we read the, the genealogy. That follows right up to verse 7 of chapter 6 where God says that he's going he's gonna to wipe things out. That's the end of that. So we start with, here's the, the genealogy of Adam, and that section ends with God saying, I'm going to wipe everything out. And when we get to the Noahic Covenant, this is a whole new section, and it's important for us to realize, where does that section begin? Again, God's just pronounced judgment. What's the next thing that he says? Noah, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. So there's a connection uh, again, talking about uh, the, the themes uh, between uh, in the Noahic covenant, they, what we're going to see is that there's a connection between the what, covenant of works or the covenant of creation, the inauguration of the covenant of grace, and the covenant of Noah. Um, we see that there's a, there's a connection. There's certain themes that, that are, are similar between them. Because we see the flood as judgment against sin, yet we also see that Noah and his family are preserved. And we also see... Uh, our, um, a redemption 
of the crea- or a repetition rather of the creation ordinances blessings in Genesis chapter 9 be fruitful and multiply we see dominion language and we see the image of God we also see that the breaking of the covenant of works affected all of the created order so covenant of works broken affects man and affects everything that man had been given covenant of grace restores man, redeems man, and also ultimately restore everything that man had been given and more in the covenant of grace. So that redemption really has to, it's global in its nature. It's, 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 it's universal. And we see this very clearly that what's, what do we read about at, at, in the book of Revelation? New heavens, new earth. It's not just God saves humanity, saves his people from their sin, raises them from the dead and grants them everlasting life, he also restores and makes new the creation. We also see in this passage that there's an emphasis on particularity. It's out of the mass of fallen humanity God chooses Noah and his family to show grace. Recall the uh, the inauguration of the covenant of grace and, and the division between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which we've been talking about the last few weeks. God continues to keep his promise in order to assure that one will come who will provide redemption and victory over the serpent. And again, from Genesis 5.1 to 6.7, we see Moses giving us a particular section, uh, just driving home the point of the spread of death due to sin. The spread, uh, there's the spread of humanity. He's, humanity, as, he's, as he said to, to, to Eve, you will have children. You, they will be fruitful and multiply. But the, the spread of, of, of death uh, due to sin is also uh, highlighted as well. And we also see that even in, that, in the midst of that spread, we see that you know, there are some who walk with God. All right? We see that in that particular uh, uh, section. And then also that 6-8 begins where Noah finds grace. And this language is, is, is similar to language that we see throughout Scripture. Noah is, is one, is, he's like a brand that's plucked from the fire. He's in the midst of this context of, of the spread of death because of sin. God picks one out. He has favor on one. And we see that in, in the midst of God's pronouncement of judgment, one finds grace. And we also see that Noah's righteousness <clears throat> is not the grounds of God's favor, but God's favor is the grounds of, of Noah's righteousness. And here's an, here's uh, and this is going to come up again and again and again. We'll look at it quite a bit next week. We also see that there's a familial structure to the covenant of grace. God has grace upon Noah. Noah has favor in the eyes of God, and that affects Noah's entire family. And I, I'm really going to drive this point home. Uh, we're going to go through a whole host of scriptures to drive this point home, because when it, particularly when it comes to the issue of of how we're to view uh, the children of believers in the church, and in particular how we're to, to view who are, who are the proper recipients of the sacrament of baptism, this theme is so prevalent in Scripture, the, the burden of proof is far more, in my opinion, on the side of those who deny uh, the sign of the covenant uh, from the children of believers than the other way around. Because it is clear throughout Scripture, he repeats it over and over and over again. That when God deals with, the, with a, a particular individual and has grace upon them, he also has a concern for their entire family and talks to them about their children. And their children, because of 
the relationship of, of whether it's one parent or both parents, because of that, their parents' relationship to God, their children are now in a relationship with God in a specific way. Not saying babies are born believers or anything of that sort, but there's a difference, there's a distinction. So again, we see that there's a familiar structure that is prominent in the covenant of grace. And we see that there's an emphasis on preservation in order to accomplish redemption. We saw this when we looked at the passages from Genesis chapter 3, even in the pronouncement of judgment. God, he also says, I'm going to preserve your life. I'm going to make sure that you're fruitful, that you're fruitful and that you multiply. In order that, I'm going to keep the word that I just gave you about the seed of the woman. And we see that there's a universalistic character of the covenant of Noah and a gracious character of God's covenant, that there's, there's an aspect of, of common grace to the covenant with Noah that, that affects all of humanity, not just God's people. It really creates the context in which uh, the covenant of grace is going to be fulfilled. Because if there's no earth and there's no people, that promise is broken. All right? It's a good place for us to end for today. Are there any comments or questions? Um, have you looked at any clarification of, because we're told Adam was walking with God, Enoch walked with God, and then in Noah's favor with God, he walked, that phrase walked with God. I would assume, without looking at it in particular, and I can, I can, I can look at it uh, in the following week, that it's probably the same language. And it's, and it's language that, that's drawn upon, again, in the New Testament. I mean, Is it like within God's grace? Is it, Oh, you're asking what it means? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it means one who has favor with God, and, and as a result of the favor that God has upon them, they're God's friend. Yeah. God is bringing them into a, 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 a relationship and a friendship with himself. There's nothing about their character. Just... No, it does speak to their character, but it's not, it's not one cause in the other. Because, I mean, we see this clearly in, the, in the, the epistles, where we're given the indicative, we're given the gospel, and then we're told what's supposed to be the, the right... Uh, Response to that, and that's a, that's loving obedience and gratitude to to God. I think that's that's what it means to walk with God. God, you, God has mercy upon you, has grace upon you. You walk with Him because of that. That's that's what I see. But I would imagine the language is is probably exactly the same. But it's the comparison of sanctification versus justification. Yeah, and you know, when it comes to things like the like the federal vision and stuff, they like to mash these things together and make make uh, the law and the gospel the same thing and uh, that's that's where we get into problems here um but again that's let's wait that's too big a can of worms for us to open right now um <laughs> yeah um so and with this walk with god thing that enoch didn't die god took him mm-hmm. does that mean like god resurrected like his body just went up i guess like elijah yeah so then like because presumably this whole a lineage that was the people that are picked out, mm-hmm. aren't they all the seed of the woman? That's what we're going to get to. That's what we're going to get to. There's a clear distinction between, and we'll, we'll look at the passage from between Cain and Abel, and, but we are going to look at, there's, dis, there's distinctions being made and going on. There's, there's, a, there's a parallel people, I think, that are, that are on, on display between the descendants of Cain and then the descendants of Adam through Seth, and that has particular bearing on the, on, on the beginning of Genesis chapter 6 when we start to ask and answer the question, who are the sons of God? So, to be continued, yeah. All right, so let's close in prayer. 
Father, we thank you for your loving kindness and for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We thank you for your word and we thank you for, Lord, we thank you that you are so merciful that though we have sinned against you, you have, because of your name, because of your goodness, because of your loving kindness, have provided us one um, who grants us redemption and forgiveness and the means by which we can still stand before you and walk with you. And we ask for the grace to do just that. In Christ's name, amen.